and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Ray Philp and I'm a reviews editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Renat van der Papelier. Few labels in dance music have been as important as R and S. Established by Renat van der Papelier and Sabine Mace in 1984, RNS is most famous for helping define the rave and ambient era of the early 90s. Several releases in that period permanently altered the electronic music landscape at the time and remain landmarks for what many would consider a golden era. These records weren't always destined to succeed. In the case of Aphex Twin's selected ambient works 85 to 92, now regarded as an undisputed classic, skeptical peers were adamant that Renat was crazy to release such a strange record. In 97, having been worn down by the music industry, Renat and Sabine dissolved RNS and spent several years living on a stud farm. That might well have been the end of the story, but the label re-emerged in the mid-2000s and has since made its mark as a key influence on the development of post-dubstep and later industrial techno, with a particular focus on British artists. I sat down with Renat earlier this year to discuss the label's past, present and future as it celebrates its 30th year. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with Renat van der Papelier is up next. Congratulations for having a label that's been going for 35 years. It's a long time. Before we go into all of that history, I'm really just curious about your day-to-day at RNS, like what you do in a given week. What does a typical weekend, you know, if that exists at RNS, look like for you? At the moment, because for me, it's only listening to music, like 10, 11 hours a day, digging, digging. If I find something, then you know the main negotiations with uh, managers and lawyers. And uh, once it's signed, then I just follow up music. And it goes to London to our label manager, and he takes care of the promotion and whatever needs to be done. And you still live in Ghent? Yeah, I love it there. Would it be fair to say that you've got this sort of label operations based in London, and then you and Sabine, the, the S. S of yeah. the RNS, and you both live in Ghent? Sure. And is, is it just the two of you? It's just the two of you. We're sitting next to each other and we have Skype if we want to communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we Skype with the office or with managers. It's, you know, technology, man. Like, And it's free. I just want to get into dig into this music discovery that you're doing every day. Are you getting up really early to do this? Are you, you know, going through particular sites? What does it sort of look like? For me, I have no strategy. I'm totally chaos. So don't. I have no plan. I have no structure. I jump into the pool and I swim. Yeah. Yeah, of course, you know, if, if people send demos, I'll try to replay them personally. You know, that's for me something very important to do. Mm-hmm. So whether I like it or not, I do reply. It does take a lot of time for me to reply because I think it's very important. What does Sabine do? Sabine is, uh, you know, without Sabine, it's impossible. She does uh, everything, you know, the administration, credit control, um, you know, leading 
the company financially, which is, you know, extremely important. Um, yeah, the kind of royalty statements, just everything, all paperwork, um, even booking my train ticket and making sure that I'm in time on a train. I wanted to, you know, get a bit more into your routine, let's say. Mm -hmm. I have uh, a siesta in the afternoon. By siesta, do you mean just like having a nap? It's A, being alone. Yeah. Even because, you know, me and Sabine are 24 hours, we're, you know, nonstop together. <laughs> so it's an alone time. I rest a little bit because, you know, at that time of the day, it's super boring. Uh, the artists are still sleeping. And yeah, it's a time to to think a little bit, really, because I wake up seven, eight o'clock quite early in the morning. Even when it's late, I'm there. I don't know why. But I know where it comes from when I was breeding the horses. So from that moment, I had to wake up at six and it's still there. Were you always like an early riser or did this come when you ran the stud farm? I was never an early riser. You know, 10 years running the stud farm, it's still in there. And it feels good waking up because it's quiet, gets so much done in a short time. Bam, 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 bam. And I, yeah. I reply my mails, I check, start listening to music and then... The fun starts. I mean, all the nonsense starts. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is my part, best part of the day, to be honest. <laughs> In terms of what you're doing once the evening comes, on the, once the, I guess, the fun stuff happens, yeah. um, do you find yourself spending a lot of time in clubs still? It's it's ridiculous. I've I've been in front of clubs that uh, the, the bouncers wanted to call an ambulance. You know, you're too old to get in here. So <laughs> I spend more time in clubs than I would say in the early days or even when I was younger. You know, I do maybe three parties a week. Of course, I started playing myself, as you know. Mm -hmm. But also, if I don't play, I'll, I go check out DJs or acts or, you know, I have to find out. I have to be there, feel it, smell it and, and, and hear it. Yeah. And presumably, you know, you're doing this all over the world. If I think it's worth it, then I take a plane and go. <laughs> when you're in conversations in these clubs and when they get into conversation about the music of RNS, do they tend to mention a certain era? Or do you find that actually a lot of people meant, like have their own favorite little bits of the catalogue that they mention to you? Probably the most interesting question ever asked in 30 years interviews. You know, years ago, it was always about JD and Beltram. And, you know, with all due respect, I mean, there were, you know, tracks that made the label to what it is today. But now I have youngsters coming. So they're talking about the loan. They're talking about Paula. They're talking about new things we're doing. They're, talk they're talking about Apollo, like a synchro or even... Uh, a Paul Wine album, which has nothing to do with dance music or Nadine Shaw that we did. So that makes me extremely happy. And kids come to me, you know, <laughs> you're full of surprises and this is what we like, you know. Mm -hmm. I tried it since day one. That was my dream to be free and eclectic, to be totally free. Of course, you know, in that area, you know, when, when House and Techno started, we were a techno label, techno house label slash. Uh, we didn't have much, much freedom. There was, there was not much I could do outside of that. But now RNS is there to a point that uh, they understand the craziness. And I'm so happy about that. And you felt this sort of um, freedom, I guess. Did you feel that, that you had much more of it once you came back into doing RNS? Because Correct. just to fill in some context, was it 97 or so? 97. Sorry, I that you, that you yeah. stopped RNS, you and Sabine went to open a stud farm. Correct. And you were doing that for six, seven, eight years. Eight years. Yeah. When you redid the label, I guess, you know, did you feel as though you had a clean slate, you could do whatever you wanted? That was certainly the target because I, I didn't want to go back to the old days, but with all respect and, you know, releasing, you know, two techno tracks a week or two house tracks a week, you know, it becomes boring. The world continues evolving. So you had much more independent labels doing great stuff. So why would I do the same thing? How different did the landscape look from 
when you left Arnest to when you kind of restarted it? Did it did it take a lot of catching up? Not really. The, the only thing was uh, that I doubted about myself, about my age. And then in the beginning, we had A&Rs and people were giving ideas. This is how we came up to James Blake. And it didn't work because out of my own sort of ego, I think. So we kicked everybody out. And because that was the reason that I started Arnest, is to have a close r- relationship with artists, to talk with them, to... Uh, because there is the music and there is definitely the person behind the music, which is very important. Yeah, now I'm, I'm, I'm at my age at the position where I feel extremely happy, um, energetic and the place where I want to be. That kind of makes me think of something I saw in an old YouTube clip. It's like around about 1991. You were talking about the fact that I think um, to make good music, you really needed to have a strong personality. I get the sense that you still believe that. Oh, yeah. Do you feel that that's, you know, the majority of artists that you've put out have been very strong personalities, either as people or, you know, in a musical hell, sense? Hell yeah. Look at Aphex, man. Jesus, what a guy. I still have to meet a second person like him in my entire life. The guy is is, is mesmerizing. You know, it's even two points. And he was the first that is really intimidating to 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 some level i got the guy's unique did you did you feel this even when you met him oh yeah yeah i, I went three steps backwards i was nearly falling out of my window the guy has such a, a strong charisma there is something around him it's beautiful it's beautiful to see and uh, I, I met him when he was 17 or 18 still a young kid but he knew exactly at that point there was no doubt this is what i want this is <laughs> this is me people send me music and sometimes there is a text, what should I write or do for RNS? And say, well, you know, with this question, you can fuck off right now. It's like Prince asking biggest artist on the planet, what should I do? Maybe should I do a better white? You know what I mean? Mm. So, yeah, I, I like those strong individuals. I get the impression that you found these people to have very strong sense of themselves, you know, mm-hmm. just like very uh, assertive. And as a counterpoint to that, there's a sort of trope where artists can be very self-doubting and they can sort of second-guess themselves a lot of the time. Have you also sort of had to deal with that and maybe act as well, a sort of... I think non-stop. Even if you have confidence, even I have my, my fates and my doubts and, you know, but all great artists will be like that, of course. They will have a vision where they want to uh, go, but they... they they will always re- rely on a second opinion or a second ear or someone they really trust by even not talking, looking in their eyes or something. I think they can see free spirits in me and that I can let go, that I can even release records, which I know that nobody will understand, but I will understand the artist or what he's trying to say. I will do that. I wanted to stay on the topic of Aphex Twin just for a bit longer because I remember you also said once that either the first or second record you tried to put out of his on RNS. Mm-hmm. Um, Selected Ambient Works, yeah. I was wondering which one you were sort of struggling to sell. That was Selected Ambient uh, Works. Really? So you not only struggled to sell this record, but am I correcting saying that people were actually criticizing you for trying to put, yeah, put and, this and out? Yeah, especially the Germans, because they said that at some point, RNS, that's, it's not that, because it was an ambient album, you know? <laughs> Gonna destroy RNS. No, 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 no. So did they give a reason or did they, did they just... It, was it, it didn't fit in time, you know. People want, I don't know, they want to be comfortable in a certain cocoon when music is released in time and place. 
you know, I've read uh, accounts of like the kind of, I guess, the general rise of like ambient music in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Did this feel completely out of step with that? And, you know, because I kind of seemed like it was happening at the same time with, you know, people like Mixmaster right. Morris and... You know, Mixmaster Morris couldn't understand the album. He was one of the first one, but it, it was still out of sync. It was weird. In the year that we re- released the record that um, Enemy wrote, you know, the Hallelujah, I mean, boom, and then everybody was gone. But in the beginning, we had a hard time. Was it the music press thing that changed oh, yeah. public opinion oh, yeah. of it? <laughs> no doubt about it. That's really interesting. And, you know, at that time, you know, Enemy had serious power. And I still miss that kind of uh, critical press, to be very honest. You know, they could adore you or they could kill you in a second. Did that happen other times as well, where, let's say, uh, a record was maybe just like uh, trundling along and then all of a sudden, like a magazine may have picked it up either as a feature or a review and then, it, you know, it went skyward? Of course, you know, look at the history of music, you will see it nonstop. Hmm. Look at America, Pink Floyd, you know, they couldn't get the press or on radio, <laughs> one of the biggest bands on the planet. Was there another particular record where you felt that music magazine approval was like absolutely crucial to the success of that record, besides obviously the one we've just discussed? I think at, at that time, I would say probably every record. Of course, there were less releases and, and you know, we, we're looking at a different time now where everything is on the net and, you know, we, you really have to, <laughs> I mean, there is an overload of music. Not that that's a bad thing, but at that time, you know, um, I think the press had a certain uh, view, overview over you know, records that came out, they they could make or break a record. Absolutely. I get the impression that, like, whenever, like, in your life and career that I've read of, you've sort of taken advice from others. Uh, it seems as though, like, you've done better when you've just ignored it or you've just, like, gone your own way. That'd be fair. I don't take advice from nobody. It seems like a useful quality to have if you're going to start, you know, like a label, especially if you don't have much experience, I guess, in that realm. I still don't have much experience. 35 years and I, <laughs> and I still don't know what I'm doing. It's it's about, and I know for other people it's business, it's, you know, business plans, P&Ls and blah, 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 and yeah. structure. And, and yeah, we should have offices uh, around the world. For me, it's about music. It's about... It's what comes out, what really touches me. And if, if this is right, if, if this vibration is cool for me, cool, yeah. fine, I'm, I'm a happy person. Before you stopped RNS in 97, mm. can you just give, give us a picture of how what big happened? things got? There were quite a lot of records that seemed to be coming out at that point. Yeah, there, were, there was a lot. The, the sales went easy and, you know, all goes easy. And then you think you have to follow the usual structure as a businessman. You have to grow and you have to show the world. And, 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 and I was uh, a victim of that too. I, mentally, I was so bored with it. I, I couldn't do it. Uh, what was Sony's role in this? Because I understand you took a, you, you got into a partnership with Sony yeah, first, around, this, around this time. I'm not sure exactly when. That was uh, 96, because in 97 we went out, so it took, <laughs> it was, uh, it lasted 12 months. Yeah, I mean, everything was well. We had uh, the rights of Derek's album, of course, Kenichi, which was, you know, for the Japanese, it's very important when they see Japanese artists going to Europe. I mean, so this whole joint venture came from that, but, you know, it. I, I was in PL meetings every day, you know. I had to fly twice to Japan sitting on a big table with accountants and <laughs> explain myself. And I couldn't. I'm a street dog. <laughs> you also, in other interviews, have mentioned like this was also a time where 
I guess, you know, you could dance music itself was becoming more like bigger and more business-like, more... It was the beginning of the festivals were getting bigger, you know, the whole uh, celebrity culture. So that they could see that we could see it, you know, everything, it was ready to explode to 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 different level to, you know, a big, as we know it today. Yeah. Was, was there a particular moment, like say a festival you went to or... A... Yeah, I, I was at the, the first rave at Bath. I was spreading the word all over Europe, you know, even to big promoters, you know, who who are doing rock festivals like Toad Vector, you know, you have to see this. Okay, we're off here. I see. And then a whole commercial circle start, which is normal. For me, that's the story of my life. When there is money to be made, I'm off. I'm not interested anymore. We mentioned Kenishi. How would you sum up his contribution to the to the label? You know, he made quite a lot. He made like four, five albums for Arnis, if I'm... I think Correct. two. Was it two? Mm, a couple of VPs and, and two albums. Okay. Must have uh, misread yeah, but what was going it, on. It, it took a long time in between, but it's, of course, Extra, which was uh, when we did uh, the manga video, the first manga video from uh, Morimoto, who mm-hmm. did Akira. It was amazing, but also not the fact that it was a manga video, but made by the director from Akira, made it, you know, this extra, <coughs> you know, gave it the extra dimension because I knew... That time, guys from Virgin was were flying over to sign, and yeah, it was a good move. And indeed, uh, things like that are triggering me. What what can we do? And it really triggers me because it's still street art. It's still, as with Richard, as with Joey, as with just name him. You know, there are so much much guys on the catalog, which there are cultural moments in there. Yeah, I can die with a smile. <laughs> were there um, like other kind of positive? You know, you mentioned the the, the video. Uh, Locust, th- another guy. Locust, yes. Wow. Overshadowed by by Richard, totally because they were at the same time. But what a guy! If you listen to those two two albums, they are masterpieces. Even twenty years later, they they are fucking masterpieces. And then he he because he was an editor at BBC Two. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he a video editor, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. He, he toured, and that was basically the first, and also the first tricks we, that we see now, which are regular on TV, like with different images on 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 a screen. And he toured with that in order to show it was a visual thing what sampling was. So he was looping a drummer from from the Who, you know, a guitar lick from Jimi Hendrix. But we couldn't release the thing. And I wish we could have done it because it's a, it's absolutely uh, within video and music content a dolly of the 21st century. What was the looping. purpose of him looping th- these images? And yeah, okay, well you can loop. You put it in your computer and then you press. But then you you see the, the you know the drummer looping one rhythm. So then you had Michael Jackson, whatever you know. Was he doing this for BBC projects or was he doing no, it no, for no, his that, own he, thing? He did it on on on, on his tour. Okay. Oh, because right. Because we had right. no idea how to promote the album, so he came up with the idea. So we we did we did some concerts like that, and everybody was like, "Wow!" You know, the Soulwax Brothers, mm-hmm. the too many G, they they saw it at my house when they were little kids, and they were like, "Wow, this is the start of the mashup. This is RNS. They are the first with something fucking crazy. Somebody else can take the credit, no problem. But that was the first mashup. It was insane. He has the images, of course." But it's it's impossible to clear. It's the Beatles. It's the Stones. It's Jimi Hendrix. It's uh, but when you see it and it's 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 a masterpiece. It absolutely 
video and musical masterpiece. Something I also wanted to get onto related to Locust, um, if I'm correct in saying that he released a lot of his records on Apollo. Yeah. How did you come to that decision? You know, because that because was obviously a few important. years after Ernest uh, uh, came back. on Apollo, and I've said it so many times to everybody, it's as important. It's it's my yin-yang. It's, it's, I have the soft romantic side and I have that still rock and roll beast in me. And, and I need both. I, I really need both. Uh, and I love ja- I love music, man. What can I say? You know, I, I just adore music. If the RNS motto is like, in order to dance, then it's, the it's, Apollo one must in be... In order to listen, you know, chill out, yeah. have a joint. I think listening is, is what we, especially a new generation, it's lost. It's, you know, the, the, first it was television, the, the zip generation, now it's the, you know, the clip generation, whatever. So um, it's still there to listen because you have to listen to a record. And that's why it's still there. And now uh, it, it took me a long time to bring Apollo back to where I want. This year I have some quality, you know. I wanted to cycle back a little bit. I guess a lot of people view Arnest as being like a rave labeled, you know, a person techno label. Mm-hmm. And from, you know, it started in like 1990. Et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, for a number of years, it was actually releasing mostly new beat. And it was kind of, it's been going since like the sort of 84, 85. Mm-hmm. What I'm interested in actually specifically is I know there was a club in Ghent called Boccaccio. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like basically the place to hear Belgian new beat at that time. What was your involvement in that club? Were you going there as I a regular? I played there as a kid. How old were you? I, I worked because they had two clubs, so uh, Boccaccio, the, the smaller version, from there, and um, Balmoral, which was another uh, another club. Also in Ghent? Also in Ghent, so I worked there, you know, as waiter, as DJ, so I know the whole history of that, that thing. Okay. So of course we went, and it was, um, I left a little bit, and then a new beat came and we heard about it, and um, so I went back to the club, and it was really weird to see uh, seeing thousand kids waiting at 8 o'clock in the morning to get in you know, in, in our city. And it was all, you know, that club has such a, an importance in the world because it, it, it broke electronic music worldwide. I've seen guys from England who are now big A&R guys who have labels, you know, the whole community was there. The Germans, everybody was there to capture that feeling. It was very special. Musically, if, if I look back, you know, it was not my thing because, I, you know, I grew up with jazz and soul. So it's, it's only when, you know, Derek came and uh, with it is what it is that said, okay, fine, that, that's the place where I want to be. But, you know, it was so important. It broke electronic music worldwide. Uh, throughout this period where you were obviously involved in this club, you were working at a record store too also, weren't you? Yeah, Music Man, yeah. Yeah. You were actually producing some records on RNS early on. Well, that, that was before, before the whole new beat scene that uh, I've, I've met in the record shop a guy because Ghent is a university city. So yeah, my studio, ha- uh, my cousin has a studio in, in Germany, <laughs> a rich guy, and he has no clue what to do with it. Saying, so, well, dude, I'm a producer. <laughs> so, <laughs> where is your car? <laughs> because I, I, of course it was bluff po- poker, but I wanted to, to see studio inside. <laughs> I, I had no idea what to imagine. So I quit my job and uh, yeah, we, start, we started making sort of records there. I was sitting there like an idiot. <laughs> You know, Just learning on the job, basically. Well, 
No, those guys were musicians and uh, they were playing and, and I could give them tips from what could sell in, in a record shop. Uh -huh. So because I had, I knew what was selling it at Because you were in the club, you were in the record store, yeah, you were all around so, it. Yeah. So you're like a kind of like a Svengali uh, figure rather than yeah, like yeah, a hands-on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought it was Quincy Jones. <laughs> I had that feeling. <laughs> um, so this is how it all started, you know, it's stupid records. And, but then again, Rolling Stones made covers and the Beatles too. This is how they started, no? Yeah. There's a particular record that I wanted to highlight that actually did really well that you were involved in. It was um, Code 61, the, drop, uh, drop the Deal. That was the first, actually the first record, <laughs> a cover of Barry White. Really? Honest to God. Which which one was it? Can't get enough of your love, baby. Okay. And, and even Barry White. The first. It. You mean the first ever RNS yeah. one? Well, the second, I would say, the second or the third. Even Barry White heard it, and he he had sent a tape. You know, congratulations. I still have the tape with his voice. Hey, man, this is great, great cover. Rah, rah, rah. I still have that. Amazing. Yeah. And and I don't know. We sold maybe hundred thousand copies of that. I said, wow, man. Like I don't have to work at Volvo or whatever. You know, this is easy money. You know. And now I can understand why everybody is sniffing coke, driving Ferraris. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Drinking and this is the good life. You don't have to work and and that was so, the sort of the beginning of new beats. Then uh, I was recording um, because no one had made a sample record, and I was recording Miami Vice. You know about drug deals and that was that was on the Code Sixty One record, yeah, right? I yeah, said, there was okay, like three or four TV shows that you sampled yeah, yeah, on that. Yeah. And I said, okay, fine, let, let's make a record with that and do something stupid with the Pope, you know, it's an intro. God, da, da. There's, yeah, I've seen the video. You've got, you're basically three rabbis and one like yeah. bishop or something. So we released that record, man, and it flew. It was in the charge everywhere, like, well, bingo, honest to God. You know, we were even on a stage that we had to perform <laughs> that stupid thing uh, after German Jackson. Can you imagine? Honest to God, I was there like an idiot dancing. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen the video, it's quite something. <laughs> but yeah, the thing is that in the old days, records were scanned, and mm -hmm. this is how you came into the chart. So in one week we were at number one, and it was in France and in Germany, everywhere. It was playing on Ibiza as well, wasn't it? It was like a... Um, this is where, you know, Balearic beat, where, where it changed. It came to England. It changed even England, because you guys were still playing Northern Soul. Yeah, that's right. And <laughs> of course it was right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I know that that track ended up on a, a Shum compilation yeah, exactly. as well. <laughs> and so it was played at Shum and all the rest of it. You know, it's uh, even early on, you were kind of like, yeah. No, we had no making idea. Making a mark. Yeah, well, yeah, but it, 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 that was so funny. And uh, <laughs> that track of flu, so television was calling us. Oh, you know, do you have a video? No, of course we don't have a video clip. But we have live you know, kind of thing. So because the, the, the guy from the studio was a Jewish guy, so he came up with the idea with the hat. And so we practiced the dance in a night, and then the day after... You practiced the routine. Yeah, just like in one night. And yeah. you're like, let's do something stupid, whatever. <laughs> I, like, I appreciate the dedication you showed to, like, you know, making a convincing performance yeah, on television. Yeah, because then I say, okay, stardom is close to me now. <laughs> I'm not Quincy Jones, I might be Michael Jackson, who knows? <laughs> Uh, great fun. But it, it's also the proof <laughs> of, of letting loose. Come on. I mean, what I took from that from that video and just, the, I guess, the, you know, the wacky antics of it is that <laughs> there's definitely like a youthful spirit about it. You know, it's very lighthearted. It was very fun. It's a, it's a useful approach, I guess, for, you know, just... I mean, it had to be as stupid as possible. Yeah. What else can you do with a record which is fully sampled? What? <laughs> this early period, obviously, was, was predominantly new beat. 1990 was obviously the, what you've said before was the turning point for oh, the label. And that was because you released a record Joey, by Joey maybe. Beltram, Energy Flash. So he finished uh, Energy Flash. Uh -huh. Then three days later, he called me and he played me uh, Mantasm through the phone. I said, 
That's amazing. <laughs> Dude, I mean, this is serious. This is, this is rock and roll. And how long from that conversation did you take to release that record? 10 seconds. That was released not under Joy Beltram's name, but as, as second phase. Correct. Yeah. What was the reaction when that, when that second one came out? Because, I mean, you know, I can't... It was a monster. Ask the prodigy how, how much that record means to them. You know, Liam, it's one of his most important records that really shaped the engine of the, of the prodigy. It was, it was punk, man. That was like... That mentasm sound just like then proliferated. It became, then it became the Hoover sound. Yeah. yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. That well, was terrible. What, what do you mean by that? Somebody comes with an idea and it's, it, it's normal. And then you have the next three years, uh, you know, records that like clones to that record. This is uh, something I always hated. And I will always hate, you know. Are you talking about about like that in general as, you know, like... Um, yeah, but then from that Gabber came, you know, that, that record is a very important record. The Hoover sound was still a little bit techno, but then mm. Gabber, then it went... <laughs> you know? Sort of gone through the discography. I'm pretty sure I didn't find a Gabber record in there. <laughs> no. This was the moment that I started to worry, you know, because of course I'm a little bit older, as you can see. So, okay, here we go, you know. It's like with Pop, there was a hit, you know, blah, blah, blah. And before that time, it was a very virtual period. There were unique guys. Uh, you had house, house guys coming up with great records, um, you know, from Derek, you know, the Detroit sound, uh, Chicago, you know, very inspirational. They, they were individuals. And then that period, okay, here we go. You know, the machine... McDonald's has entered the music scene. How, how do you think that happened? Well, it's money. It's normal, don't get me wrong. It's, it's that, that money machine and, and then majors came in because, you know, okay, the record sold, but not, not to give, uh, you know, 10, 20,000 or 50,000 pounds advance for a single, excuse me. Mm. Uh, so, you know, money was flying left, right and center. It was like, oh my God, you know, what's, what's going on here? But I, I turned my back and did what I had to do. I kind of wanted to talk about compilations. When I looked at the compilations that you released and, you know, from, say, 89 to mm. mid-90s, they seemed to mark, like, a period in time. That was the intention, yeah. So, you know, the 89 compilation, that was In Order to Dance 1, that was mostly, obviously, New Beat. The, like, 2 and 3 were very much, you know, the Aphex records are on there, the mm -hmm. Belgium records are on there. Number four, At Les by Carl Craig was on there. It was a sort of the second wave Detroit stuff was starting to come through. Correct. And then drum and the drum and bass period. That mm -hmm. was 96. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say that you took a little while to get to the period where you were releasing that sort of music? I don't know if it was too late because I was there at uh, where Bookham played that little club. I, have, I always forget the name. Also Goldie's Night. I was there from day one because it's still today I, I'll, I'll try to be there where, where the fire is burning, where even five guys are dancing on crazy music. Then, then I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, th this is my cocoon, you know. <laughs> so it took me a while because the scene as, as with the Romanians, they, they were really protective. So there was, I, I tried to, to, to get records out, but they were like street gangs, you know, doing their own records. You know what I mean? Were you very much seen as an outsider in that, well, in of that course, sphere? Which is normal. Yeah. Yeah. Then I finally managed to bring a drum and bass album to, to Europe because they didn't know. It was, you know, they had no idea. You know, Belgium or Germany, they had no, maybe a few, don't get me wrong. But the general public had no idea what was going on. Which album was this? The compilation in order the to dance five. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, for the rest, it was a very close scene. That, that's why we could, I couldn't really get really into the depth. I knew who was playing the key roles and I knew the music, but from a label point of view, there was no, 
which is good. I have one. I have I have one result, so I managed to do something. <laughs> what was the, I guess, the feedback that you had from RNS putting out these sort of records? Because clearly you were putting lots of different stuff out, you know, mm-hmm. up until then. But, you know, if you're putting out techno and trance records and ambient records for a period of time, this must have been quite a sort of pivot. Well, that, that was one of the reasons. Come on, I'm, I'm bored. Because that we were already come very close to the end where I'm... I didn't find anything interesting anymore. So drum and bass was the only thing I was listening to. It was really refreshing. It, it was challenging. Uh, yeah, again, I couldn't really go into the core and sign the acts that I wanted to sign. And, you know, a lot of other million things that I decided to stop with that in 1997. Or, you know. Were there particular drum and bass records that RNS released that you think are as strong as anything that the label has released, you know, in, in the sort of history? Yeah, man. For me personally, it's a very personal thing, but uh, the first Goldie album, for example, I wish that would have been released on RNS. The first um, Bookham, of course, they are milestones. They are blueprints of, you know, I've never been into, um, you know, the sort of heavy metal of, uh, of dance music, whether, you know, I've always been that soft, romantic guy. But yeah, those were just to name a few. The drum and bass sort of phase of the label must have given you kind of must have been quite reinvigorating in some way on the other hand obviously the sony you know aspect of things came in and obviously ground you down to a point where you didn't want to do the label anymore no i was bored with everything i was bored with uh i saw the club scene dying how did that look i mean there were you know bigger festivals dance music went on festival then went on radio and it went it went it was popular music simple as that you know people still talk about it's underground. No, no. It's the disco of the 21st century. It's just dance music. Relax. You know, all the Godfather stuff, and I'm the Godfather of this, I'm the Godfather of that. Like, I'm going, Jesus, I have to get out of here. I have to refresh. I have to take a shower, take fresh air. We were all street kids. Nobody was nobody doing. We had fun. We were releasing records. The parties were cool. And that faded away into celeb culture. And Once you decided that RNS was going to, you know, not be a thing anymore. What were the steps that led you and Sabine to, th- to say, let's open a stud farm? That's an early dream. It was not Sabine's choice because she thought I was totally, <laughs> I totally lost my mind. <laughs> so and you had to persuade her that this was a good idea? Well, that's one of our biggest discussions we have in our life. You don't ask me nothing, I just follow. <laughs> I had two dreams. It was to become a drummer because you see me, I'm not focused enough. I'm an idiot, I, you know, because drummers need to work and they need discipline. So with me, that's, it's not there. <laughs> and horses, when, when, when my father brought me to the Spanish riding school, I was so fascinated by, by the dance of the horse and the rider and control and, you know, the music that really... But of course, you know, my, my dad didn't have money to buy a horse. And so I said, okay, fine, one day I'll do it. And so I bought a stud farm, bought me six stallions with the money from Soli Blue, all the money, but I can ride a horse and very good. Did people visit you? Or was it complete seclusion? I mean, did people not visit? Der- did people not Der- call? Derek came, you know. The, Derek May. Uh, Derek came twice to the farm. I still have it on video when he saw Bert. And what, who's Bert? From a horse, you know. Okay, right. Typical uh, Derek, Eddie Murphy comments around it. You know, I, I, I've given my all my footage. I have so much crazy shit and footage filmed from the day it started till when I stopped. Did you let Derek ride a horse? No, 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 no. no he no, no. possibly wasn't keen. No, he didn't even <laughs> like the smell of it. <laughs> Those animals stink, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, who else? 
But then again, nobody could reach me. I, I was planning to become a very good breeder, you know, with all my pretentious arrogance as if I'm going to be the best. You didn't see this as a temporary thing. You no, were going to do this forever. That was the end yeah. for me. That was, you know, I, I've done it. I've, pff, what else can I do than just, just repeat myself? And I guess quite justifiably, you would have felt that you'd have possibly have achieved everything that you wanted to as a label owner at that point. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Which people talk to me in that sense, but I, I, I don't talk about it. I, 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 RNS is there and for the outside is bigger than it is for me. It's my key to freedom. I can live how I want and I don't look at it as, as a big status or a big label, whatever. I, really, I, I, I don't care. I don't lose my sleep about it as, as long as I can wake up with a smile and go to bed like an idiot again. And then I'm, I'm very happy. And when I hear refreshing things and things that touch me, then, hey, man, this is a beautiful life. How important was just having a complete break? Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Because, you know, when, when I was younger and you do the label, you, you try to compromise, you, you try to be polite. Yes, 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 yes. And now it's very easy for me to say no, which is very important. You, you have to learn to say no in your life, you know. I think one of the things I've personally admired about the label since it's restarted, it still seems like it's shaped conversations in music, you know, about like certain types of music or certain scenes. I'm thinking about one, a few records that were, out in 2013, 2014, from like Paula Temple and MPIA3, we ran a feature about what was then called industrial techno, where, you know, harder like techno sound was coming out and RNS was felt very central to that at that time. Generally, another example of this was um, possibly the compilation In Order to Dance 11, as in 2011. How did that come together? Because it seemed to sort of like represent RNS's at that time focus on UK artists and the kind of post dubstep group of artists. Because but it was based in London, I think that's the only reason. So I have let guys, because I didn't uh, compile that compilation. That was the period that I have let people, you know, sort of A&R. When I came in was uh, when it was dubstep and, you know, techno was basically gone, you know. It, and then Paula came back, so, you know. And, every, you know, again, another point where everybody said, you're fucking crazy, man, this is never going to work. Watch. I think Paula and MPI, you know, they brought techno back into seriously. And the way Paula is doing it is, is, is quite unique. It's, it's quite hybrid. It's not just like boom, 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 four to four. Yeah, it, it is hard, but it's punk. It has this it has this X factor. You know, Paula is punk. It is and, and it, it is a punk girl. It's not just another techno girl. It's she is punk, full on. Trust me. In her private collection, when you go, you're listening to punk. And the album she's, she's making now, probably people will not understand it, but it's punk. I uh, wanted to talk another, about another artist who I feel in this, I guess, modern era, who almost feels like, you know, he sort of, spa he on the one hand references lots of eras of the past, but is very much his own artist as well. I'm talking about Lone. Because mm -hmm. like his records on the one hand are really inspired by the sort of like 90s rave, mm -hmm. breakbeat, ambient, mm -hmm. drum and bass, jungle era, which RNS was very much in the thick of, but also you couldn't really mistake his records for anyone else's. As soon as like a, you know, a, a few chords hit, that's a lone record. And that's quite a unique thing to have where like an artist can like sound like the past and also sound like himself. That is very important that an artist has his own signature. As most of the records, they, they are clones. They, I, I couldn't say if it's made by you or by me or a donkey or my sheep. You mean it's exactly the same. There is no, there is no personality. It's just like, hey, this is going to work in time, you know. 
So Lone is one of them, but you know, Paula is one of them. You can hear a Paula Temple record from a mile. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I mean, it's this is what I'm looking for. More not only an RNS. Now you have a generation where you can. Th- there are signatures, synchro, same thing. Synchro is you know you can hear a synchro record from hundred miles, and and this is what we you know how we started about a personality, what he thinks and what 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 they want to do and. A Boards of Canada records you can hear from, you know it's going to be Boards of Canada. Mm. And this is beautiful. And all the rest is, you know, hamburgers and, you know, McDonald's and whatever. A record we haven't talked about is Classic Dreams by GD. What I want to know is, is it, in your view, more difficult for a dance music label to have a hit like that? Today, I think it's impossible because it's too fragmented. The scene is too fragmented. In those days, you know, everybody was playing uh, whatever Moby, Go or... You know, the whole world, now that would be totally impossible. The house guys would play, go, and then you have the techno scene, the drum and bass scene. It's so fragmented. It's interesting to note that, like, you know, some of the records that I guess were bestsellers in the RNS catalogue were ones that were seemed to be played by, uh, you know, lots of different types of DJs sure. that kind of cut across the musical spectrum. Mm-hmm. There don't seem to be, you know, I haven't really been around long enough to say this firsthand, but it just doesn't seem to be the case now where, like, a record really cuts across. Impossible. Because I'm going out a lot and it's different everywhere. Okay, if, if you're in a specific scene, there might be one record. But again, it's fragmented. You, you're in a scene that you will hear, you know, a hit record within that scene. A couple of times have been played over six months, but now one week and it's over. Next. This uh, brings me nicely to your DJing. I understand you've been DJing for a little while. Yeah, it came out of a joke from students because I never wanted to DJ because it's, RNS is there to for our artists, not for me. You know, I'm I'm not gonna build my name on on the guys that are making music because without without them, they are the guys. So out of the joke, like three four years ago, students called me Renat from Ghent, uh, and I always said no for for all those years. And I said, okay, fine, you don't use my name, but whatever I do, leave me alone. So I did it, played six hours. In a very small, normally it's 50 people, 100 people. They were even on the street till 10 o'clock in the morning in Ghent from playing close shoes to the Detroit stuff, to the demos that I had, everything. I remember a house kid coming to me. I was, I was playing close, close shoes and this kid came to me. Is this new? He said, no, this 40 years old, man. And this kid looked at me. You know, again, it, music from those guys is so advanced, so up there that you cannot find it today. Try to find me a record that is as good as a close shoes record. You just can't. And if you can't find it, please give it to me. Because you'll sign it. Yeah. But there I could see, because then did this whole thing, hold on, those, those kids are what, like 17, 25 students, of course. Yeah. And of course, I was playing with tapes. I had no idea what I was doing. Mixing, you know, was out of the question. Mm. But then I said, Jesus, man, that, like if, if you push that a little bit forward, they're ready. They want something else. Mm. You know, played around a little bit, um, bought my first tractor. And, uh, but yeah, now the last two years, I take it serious. And I play six hours. I've played in Kiev and Istanbul like 10, 12 hours. I travel with 80,000 tunes. And it goes from rock to classical music to jazz to whatever. Timing, when you play something, is important, of course. And that's why you need time to play. Because for me, the first two hours, just warming up, you know, it's say hello, how are you, feeling the vibe, smell. Then you go. So it's, it's telling your own story. Like, like Laurent Garnier, if let this guy play, man, like you're going to hear some serious music. You put out a record on RNS at the end of last year, part of a new series called RV Tracks. Ah, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's... 
to take full control over RNS, so nobody will decide England or whatever what comes out. If yes, no, I like it, I don't like it. So I that, that's so that's your little thing. Then the other thing is because you always have the discussion, yes, but which is sort of standard. Yeah, but it, it's no Facebook profile. We cannot release it. It's no whatever. You know all, all the the clicks. And I said, you know, oh, fuck it, man. I'm I'm so fed up with your discussion. You know, with, that was where with our uh, London manager. Uh, we need to support those guys. So I will do it with my own name because I know it's it's. So I took attention on some of the guys that can maybe do a deal with another label and maybe do something. So I'm giving a platform using my name. Listen, people with no profile. Yeah, it's going to be a whole series. And and maybe uh, it's not going to be a series anymore. Maybe it's RNS at Pursan again. Who cares about social media? You know, you cannot say this, uh, say this in front of business people, but I don't care what comes out of the speaker. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm signing a French guy, and for me, he has made the best album in 10, 10 years. I'm not going to say who, but wow. I've been waiting for this guy for 10 years. It's okay. fucking insane. But nobody knows him. This guy's making records for 15 years and ignored completely. More news as it comes. Something I've noticed about interviews that you've done in the past is you seem to have like a profound respect for young people because, you know, I, I guess like it's easy to get cynical about the music tastes of sort of, you know, generations that follow you. But I think for you, it's very much the opposite. Oh, yeah. One of the reasons I went out to play is to meet them. So even when I'm finished, I don't care how long I've played, I go into the crowd and I talk to them. I listen because there is so much to learn. You know, I, I don't ignore them, man. Like, hey, they're a future. They are fresh. In short, I adore them. So you can say, yeah, maybe they're stupid. No, no, they're not stupid. They know what they want. They, uh, yeah, you, ha you have to listen to them. No, I don't have to listen to Sabine or any label manager who is 60 and, you know, because it's more than that. You, you travel and it's it's more than music because music is a soundtrack to your life. It's uh, it's an extra dynamic. So when you go to Tel Aviv and, and you talk with those guys about their political system and what they experienced, you know, last time in Kiev with the Russians there. So we talk about general things. That music does reflect in what... They, and you can see it. You, you can see in the, if, if you open and really listen to it. It's so fascinating. It's the most beautiful thing on the planet. I'm blessed only by doing that. You know, you can give me $100 billion and put me on an island with, I don't know, no, I'm going to say no. Please, let me die with them. Let me die on the streets because this is where I belong. And, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I don't know, it keeps me young. It keeps me uh, energized, I think. So we'll do this interview again in 100 years, then I'm 160. See, see how I sound then. Maybe they will have made it junky out of me, those bastards. <laughs> Renat, thanks so much for having me. Thank you.